Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs, containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes. Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. And they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. Talk is Jericho, baby. Talk is Jericho. Talk is Jericho, mama. Talk is me. All right, welcome to Talk is Jericho. It is the pot of thunder and rock and roll. And today, one of my oldest friends in the wrestling business, he also happens to be the co-host of Kill in the Town, the podcast with Cyrus. He's replacing Lance Storm. Paul Lazenby is here on Talk is Jericho. You heard him on uh, Keep It at 100. You heard him on Steve Austin's podcast. Uh, Paul was a professional wrestler. I helped train him. He fought in MMA. He worked as a Hollywood stuntman. He was Steve Austin's double. Also, as a bouncer. He's got a bunch of stories about all of that. He's collected a, a bunch of stories for two books of his When We Were Bouncers uh, tomes, talking about a bunch of famous people that used to be bouncers, like myself. He's got a bunch of cool stories about all the guys in his books. He's got stories about what it was like as working uh, Steve Austin's stunt double, what that was like, how he got into stunt work and acting in the first place. He also trained at the Hart Brothers Pro Wrestling School in Calgary, uh, where he met Lance Storm, who was the head trainer. You can hear about Paul's uh, favorite and not-so-favorite matches from his time in wrestling and a couple of his early gimmicks, uh, Death Wolf Pheasant. That was a good one. Paul fought for Pancras in Japan when he was in MMA. He's got other great stories about living and fighting in Japan. He's also talking about his books, When We Were Bouncers, and some of the celebrities who shared stories about their bouncing days. Paul Lazenby's coming up. But so is Fozzie. We're hitting the road again very soon on the Judas Rising Tour. Uh, continues again in July. Bunch of festival dates. Uh, July 12th, uh, Rock USA in Oshkosh. 13th is the Kadot Rock Fest in Wisconsin. Peoria on the 14th. And Belvedere at the Apollo Theater on July 15th. Then we head all the way over the pond to uh, Europe. We start off on the 26th at the Pheasant Festival in Hungary. We go through Prague, Germany, Switzerland, uh, Serbia, Italy, Slovenia, uh, Wacken. The big Wacken Festival will be there on August 3rd. Berlin, Bochum, Schaffenberg. Spain, Belgium, and we end off at the Bloodstock Festival in La, close to England, uh, close to England, it's in England, in Derbyshire, in England on uh, August 12th, and then the Judas Rising Tour starts again in the United States with Adelita's Way and Stone Broken and The Stir, Friday, August 24th, we kick that off in Atlanta at Smith's Old Bar, we go to Huntsville, Clarksville, Little Rock, Joliet, Illinois, Omaha, Nebraska, Des Moines, Minneapolis, Fargo, St. Louis, Indianapolis, Fort Wayne, Columbus, Ohio, Cincinnati, Louisville, Charlotte, Jacksonville, North Carolina, Huntington, Greenville, Savannah, Orlando, Florida, House of Blues, Tampa, The Orpheum, Fort Lauderdale, Florida, Jacksonville, Florida, all those dates and VIP information. 
fozzyrock.com. Go check it out. Best VIP in the business. We play a mini set for you guys. We meet you. We greet you. We take pictures. We do all the stuff that we got to do. Go to fozzyrock.com and find all the dates and VIP info and ticket information. Uh, great summer of rock with Fozzy and a great summer of uh, awesome Talk is Jericho episodes. Starting now with Famous Bouncers with Paul Lazenby. All right. So uh, it's funny. Sometimes you, you see somebody you haven't seen for a while. I'm here with Paul Lazenby. And you're like one of the oldest friends that I have in the business. It's crazy. That's insane, man. It's over a quarter century that I've known you, man. Yeah. It, uh, it's funny when you're a young guy and you hear old people talk about, oh, yeah, you know, such and such a year. It seems like it was yesterday. And you're thinking, no, that was 100 years ago, dude. You're old. <laughs> and now I'm doing it, man. Like, it, it does not seem that like that long ago the first time I met you. I know. It was 1991. And mm. um, we kind of talked about a little bit about this last night, but let's just go through it again. So it was 1991. And I had been in the business for a year. And Lance had been in the business for a year, Lance Storm. And somehow he got the gig training at Hart Brothers Pro Wrestling Camp. But the thing was, he was actually pretty good at it even then after one year in the business. So you show up to to go to wrestling school. And what were you promised as far as the Hart Brothers Pro Wrestling School? Like, well, what did you think you know, it was going to be? Of course, you know, probably what you probably thought too is like the Hart Brothers is the royal family of wrestling in Canada. So I'm thinking, okay, this is going to be a, a spectacular facility and there's going to be top-notch training and elite level trainers there and stuff. And then I, then I show up and I get off the bus and I'll, I'll never forget this moment in my entire life. I, I traveled 2,000 miles, uprooted my life to go to wrestling school. I get off the bus, I look up, and I'm looking at the Silver Dollar Action Center <laughs> with a giant bowling pin on a pillar outside. I'm and like, what color was it? Uh, it was pink. Yeah, <laughs> the pink bowling alley, which oh is where we God. trained. But, you know, you and Lance were, for me, what you were for Chris, uh, for uh, Lance, I'm sorry, the year before, because I got there, and, you know, I, I walk in, there's a ring, and I'm looking at all the other students, and nobody even looks like they work out. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking, what have I done? I've made this huge, stupid mistake. And then uh, Ed Langley, who was running the school, brings you and Lance in, and you guys looked like wrestlers. And then you you ran a couple spots in the ring, and you were really good even back then, mm -hmm. in, inside your first year. So that at least, Lance always said, like seeing you at least put his mind to ease that at least there's one guy here who looks like he's serious about it. And then you and Lance were the same thing. When you walked in, then I kind of breathed a little sigh of relief that, okay, th these guys look like professionals even in their first year. Did you know like uh, uh, that you were gonna be trained by a guy who's in the business for one year? And did that even matter? Like now you think about it, like if someone shows up to a wrestling school, I'm training for wrestling, who's training you? Some no-name guy that's been in business for a year, you'd be like, dude, that's not good. Mm. Did you even think of that or did you even, do you even know about that back in those days? No, it. it I had only just found out that schools for pro wrestling existed. You I, came from I, Ontario, right? I did, yeah. Kitchener, Ontario. And uh, yeah, I, I, that's another moment I'll always remember is looking in the back of Pro Wrestling Illustrated and seeing the ad for Hart Brothers. Like, oh my, oh my God, you can get into this business. <laughs> and so when I went there, I had no idea what to expect. So I had zero expectations in my head. And I didn't even stop and think to ask how long you guys had been in the <laughs> business. Because like I said, you looked like wrestlers. And when you got in the ring and ran some you spots, some like, stuff, yeah. yeah. Did you think there was going to be actual Hart Brothers there to train you? Absolutely. Yeah, I thought, <laughs> and I thought Brett was going to be there. Yeah, and Owen was going to be yeah. coming through and stuff. And I, I saw Keith for like two days until he was sure that all the checks cleared. And then he was in the wind. And that's exactly the same with mine. He showed up the first day, collected the money, uh, stretched me. And then I never really saw him again the whole rest of the time. 
which is your first education in the world of professional wrestling. <laughs> yeah. So when you showed up, like I remember, like you, like you just said, uh, I got there and, and and it was Lance was the only guy who looked like a wrestler. There's a bunch of fat kids and weird kids, and there's a kid who couldn't see straight, and there's a, a you know. The, so what, what were some of the other people in your class? Well, the guy I gravitated to almost right away was this guy Joe from Ohio. I forget his last name, but a really big kid. He was he was kind of fat, but he was huge. And he had actually turned down a full ride scholarship to uh, play football in university to come and be a professional wrestler. <laughs> like, dude, I, I wonder how many times he looks back on that decision now and regrets maybe he, it. Maybe he could get it back after that summer. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm hoping, hoping he did. He was a great guy, though, man. So uh, we we kind of hung out, and I actually ended up having my first match against him. Joey Conquest. Joey Conquest, who uh, I believe that you uh, put that him, handle on him. And, and you were powerhouse Paul Laser. Yeah, I was really hoping that wasn't going to come up, and, and I still owe you a receipt for giving me that name. It's <laughs> a great name yeah. like it. <laughs> uh look it actually is pretty awesome being able to say i had such a tragic name for my first match in the business he gave it to you by chris jericho yeah and, paul laser and also uh the guy that i think is going to stick in your memory as much as mine uh calvin who i don't think took a single shower or changed his clothes through the entire eight-week course yeah yeah yeah. And, you know, he, that dude like every once in a while he is is the elastic and his pants was shot so they would bag down he'd see his underwear and it would just get more and more stained and brown oh. as the course went on that's I, the guy i remember lance looked at him and went okay you have you ever seen the inside of a gym before and his answer was no <laughs> but wouldn't that spark some self-awareness like yeah. maybe i should start it's, like, never, it's it, like that silent life skit where uh, shatner goes to john lovitz you have you ever kissed a girl no and that's what calvin was with the inside of a gym and i always thought about that like you know if you go sometimes you go to a strip club and you see like a couple girls there god bless them but they just do not look like strippers and you're like what are you seeing in the mirror when you get up in the morning are you seeing like oh i'm a stripper i'm stripper material were these guys thinking oh i got i got like calvin like once again the most normal looking skid from drum hell or wherever the hell he was from just looked like a bum that you'd see at the pool hall no definition no personality no look and he's Signing up to be a wrestler. God bless you. You want to follow your dream, but like, are you not seeing the reality of the situation? Well, you got to put the work in. I mean, I, I acknowledge your limitations and put the work in. Just having a dream isn't enough. And I think yeah. there's, there's too much of that, like even back then, but especially today, where people just think, okay, well, I want that, so I should automatically have it. Well, no. Mm -hmm. if, if you look like crap, I mean, let's be honest, Dusty Rhodes looked like crap, but, but he could man, talk. He could talk and sure. work, and he was amazing. At, so and he was it, still a big guy. Yeah, he looked know? like he could fight. Yeah, like right. he's a fat guy that was tough. Right. So you've got to have something like that. And then Calvin case you know he, he it's it's something that uh cyrus on the killing the town podcast always talks about you know what, what's special about you if you look like you just walked out of the crowd right so he he was gonna have to find something about himself get in shape and or you know learn psychology or learn to work and he didn't do any of that stuff at all so <laughs> how about how about judge jesse Oh my God, Judge Jesse, who's still working to this. Is of all he really? The, of all the guys who would still be working at this moment in time out of that class, you would never have picked Jesse. He looked like he hadn't even been through puberty yet. Well, I, I took my uh, son years ago to see the movie Chicken Little, and I couldn't place it. And I was like, wait, he looks like Judge Jesse. <laughs> Judge Jesse looked like Chicken Little. He's in glasses oh and stuff. My God. But he had his gimmick. He was going to be Judge Jesse from day one. And this guy was about 135 pounds. Yeah, he, he, pounds. he was 24 and looked 12. And actually, this is before Judge... I think Judge Jesse came on because he's a legitimate lawyer now. Oh. So I think that's where the gimmick... But he was going to be Jazzy Jesse. Oh, Jazzy and Jesse. And he had his own tights. He showed up to school with these tights with Jazzy across the ass. <laughs> and he had this Sorry. really... Uh, and I, I, I like the guy. I've, I've spoken with him a little bit online since then, actually. Mm. And he, a really nice guy, but... 
man, he had this really lame looking double round kick. He'd kick you with his left leg, then his right leg, and it looked horrible. <laughs> and there was one day that he was doing it to you, and you just had enough at this point. Like, I think you've been dropped on your head a few times, and just some of the guys were being stupid. And he did the stupid little double kick, and you did it back to him, and it looked even lamer, and then you drop kicked the hell out of him. <laughs> he wasn't the only guy to get drop kicked out of the ring by you. Well, it was funny because uh, Lance was the official trainer for the school. And I had nothing to do that summer and nowhere to go. So I just showed up. It was like Costanza and Seinfeld. I just kept showing up every day and just kind of weaseled my way into becoming a trainer until I finally asked Ed Langley, hey, man, can you pay me some money for this? And he paid me 400 bucks for the summer. <laughs> so that's eight weeks. Uh, 400 bucks, so uh, 50 bucks a week I was getting paid to train you guys. Man, that's even less than you get per match when you <laughs> yeah, start. Right. And that's per week. That's five days a week. That's 15 hours of, of wrestling for 50 bucks. Wow, but, man. Yeah, so there you go. I just weaseled my way into training there. <laughs> so when you started working, because we always laugh about all your gimmicks and all your names and all that sort of stuff. Uh, tell me some of the it was your Were you Powerhouse Paul Laser for a while? Did you ditch that right away? Because I, I remember you never liked it. Yeah, I, I was Powerhouse Paul Laser for like two or three matches. And then I got paired up with a guy named Eric Freeze. You'll, mm -hmm. you'll remember because uh, if if I'm not mistaken, he was in sudden impact for like two seconds for, for, for when we went to Japan for That's the right. dome. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, me and Freeze were going to be Fire and Ice. So I changed my name to Rick Blaze, which ties in with Fire and Ice. Yeah, see how clever I am, man. I'm, man, I'm a genius. Um, yeah, so I was Rick Blaze for, Blaze for a little while, and then uh, I I really liked the comic book character Lobo, and I, I was I was always rolling around in my head how I might be able to incorporate some of that character in. So the germination of that just started with a name change. Nothing else. I changed my, but I started calling myself Lobo Blackthorn, which <laughs> totally does not suit me. Did not suit me then. And you know the thing is, you're not changing anything. You're still wearing. No, I was still exactly Rick Blaze, yeah. but now, now I'm yeah, like, ta-da, Lobo Blackthorn. So uh, yeah, that that died a quick and horrible death. But yeah, uh, I was able later on in my career to to really roll it around in my head, and I kind of I started painting my uh, painting my face like that character, and I grew my hair out, and then kind of changed it and made it mine and that became death wolf which was my favorite gimmick of all time was that just it was a death wolf fenris it was initially it was death wolf fenris, fenris. Which, yeah the fenris wolf is from norse mythology and okay. he's, he's supposed to come back and that's the the war the gods have where the world ends is against fenris so uh, i i love that but then when i got to detroit which is where i really had the best time in that gimmick it really got over huge and and they want they just want to call was it death the wolf. promoter there that was uh, malcolm monroe the late malcolm monroe and uh, at huck who is still running to this day uh, mm -hmm. it was called insane championship wrestling now it's called xicw and they've been running for like 20 years or something 17 years 20 years something and uh, great it was so much fun it was like uh, an even lower rent ecw <laughs> but the same vibe i mean i remember the first match that i had for them sabu was in the crowd just hanging out watching mm. and and it was in a condemned building the motor city sports club so we could do all the property damage we wanted yeah, yeah. and just just an absolute blast i loved it in that place so how far did you actually go on wrestling because i can't remember when you made the transition because you went into mma and then now you're a stuntman and we got there's a million things that you do but how far did you stick with wrestling uh, I was wrestling on and off until around 2001, I believe. I had my last match in 2004 in Portland Wrestling. Our, our mutual friend, Dr. Luther, brought me out. Oh, cool. But there was a big gap. You know, uh, yeah, yeah, I yeah. wasn't wrestling regularly after 01. So I was kind of doing MMA and, and uh, pro wrestling at the same time. And the MMA thing came about because of ICW, because of uh, wrestling in Detroit, where I, I recognized a lady in the crowd, and then I realized I'd seen her on a UFC videotape. That's how far back we're going. This is 96. Mm -hmm. And uh, her name was Phyllis Lee. And she oh, was, yeah. Yeah, she's a friend of the Malenkos and Sean Waltman. Right. And uh, she was Dan Severn's manager for yeah, a while. Okay, gotcha. And so she had been managing him on UFC, and I thought, that's a good connection to make. So I went up and started talking to her. And I said, are you booking wrestlers? And she said, no, but I'm booking real fighters. 
in a group called Pancrase, and I popped because I was maybe one of 20 guys in Canada <laughs> who knew what Pancrase was, which was actually the elite MMA group in the world at the time, even over UFC. And uh, like this crazy Japanese shoot fighting group where all the elite guys like Ken Shamrock and Boss Rutten and guys who would win the UFC title later came from Pancrase. So she said, are you a real fighter? In no way, shape, or form. I didn't even wrestle in high school. I didn't ever take martial arts or anything. I'm like, oh, yeah, totally. I was a competitive strongman. That's the it. Hollywood rule. Yeah. yeah. Can you skydive? Of course. Yeah. Better learn to skydive. Yeah. So she gave me an application form, and I filled it up with lies, all these garbage martial arts credentials that I didn't actually possess. Sent it back to her, and it's pre-internet age, so I guess they didn't bother checking it. They just saw or a picture. Or couldn't. Yeah. 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 One or the other. Um, looking back, I think it was more a case of what they like to do because they ran pancreas very much like a pro wrestling group they even fought in a pro wrestling ring and so their gimmick a lot of the time was to bring people in from all over the world and the japanese guys would slaughter them and it would make the japanese guys look better so they saw this muscular canadian kid they'd never had a canadian in pancreas before so they okay come on a fight so my first fight of any type ever was in front of ten thousand people at tokyo bankei hall against number three ranked guy in the world who was uh ryushi yanagazawa uh he would later fight in k1 and rings and stuff how did you do um, way better than they expected, way better than <laughs> I expected. I got, I got soundly dominated, but yeah. I fought way better than they thought. Because yeah. I remember you were used to train by like taking like a, a stick and just whacking yourself in the <laughs> shin like a thousand times. I'm surprised you guys even talked to me, man. I must have looked like a psycho. <laughs> you, also, you also did some stand-up too, and the best line ever was you came on stage with a bat and you pointed at some guy in the crowd and went, you better laugh. Well, see, that's, that's my anti-bomb insurance because I know at least one dude's going to crack up at everything. I think the other opening line you had was, I used to f*** guys like you in prison. It's like, here we go. Dude, I, how, why did the comedy club people even talk to me? Yeah. Why does anyone? Why are we talking exactly? Now? So yeah, but you, so you actually were a tough guy. Like you said, you're a power lifter. You're a powerhouse, Paul Laser. But so, so uh, did you take to the MMA pretty good? Because you went over there quite a few times. Yeah, it, I guess they saw something in me because I thought it was going to be one and done. I, mm. For me, it was a success that I didn't get killed. I didn't get slaughtered. Right, right, right. And uh, and I got to see Japan because I was like, you guys were always going to Japan, and I was always so jealous. I wanted to see that country, so I got to see it. That was great, but. Like a week after I came back, Phyllis called me up and she's losing her mind. And she said, uh, they want you to come back and live at their dojo for six weeks. So I guess they saw something where, uh, looking back again, I see where even guys who were UFC veterans at the time, they would go to Pancrase. And it's kind of like you've said about WWE. You know, you, you can wrestle everywhere else in the world. But when you enter WWE, you realize, oh, this yeah. is the real deal. Yeah. This is the biggest of the big time. And that's what Pancrase was like, even compared to UFC at the time. So guys would go there and they would freeze up. And they would get murdered right away. And I didn't. You know, I just... Uh, and it was a legit shoot. Yes. Yeah. Which I wasn't even sure about. Because there were a lot of rumors. About, I'm sure you remember them about how... You know, there were groups like Rings and UWFI that were running Warped Shoot, as we call it. Where they looked real, like real fights, but they weren't. And people were saying Pancrase did that too. But they only did it very infrequently. So did UFC at the time. It was like maybe one fight in 30 was a work. Mm. So I'm the whole week before I'm, I, I fight, I'm waiting for somebody to come up and give me the finish. <laughs> and nobody did. And I don't know anything. I, I didn't even bring a groin cup. I didn't bring a mouth guard. I didn't have a corner man. I didn't know anything. And I'm walking to the ring still thinking, did they forget to give me the finish? And then I got in the ring and looked down and there was just blood splatters all <laughs> over the canvas. Like... Okay, real fight. Here we go. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, so it was it was 
it was very much the real deal, and, and um, uh, yeah, one of the most serious things I've ever done in my life. But let's, let's talk about just kind of incorporating both the things when you're talking about your wrestling career. Did you ever, like, how far did you get? Did you ever get a chance to maybe go to ECW or WWE or WCW or Japan or? Uh, not as a pro wrestler. Okay. I know that uh, Dr. Luther almost got me booked in FMW as his tag team partner. They, oh. want, they wanted another Dr. Luther, Luther clone, uh, Dr. Hannibal. Yeah. And that ended up being Steve Gillespie. Because... I also auditioned for that part. Oh, he, damn. What a slut. He was auditioning everybody. <laughs> Well, I think it was Fred Jung was knocking him down as fast as he could set yeah, him up because he was yeah. mad at you for something. He was mad at me right, for right, right, and right, he right, was right. making the call. So yeah, yeah, it ended yeah. up being Steve. But uh, no, I I, uh, I did get to go to South Africa uh, okay. thanks to Cyrus. He uh, I guess uh, Jim Peterson, the kickboxing maniac, mm-hmm. he just completely disappeared because he was, he was a good guy but insane, insane and he just yeah. he went off the res and just. I, disappeared. I remember one time uh, he he wanted a gig, and so he went and got a razor blade. Like a Bic razor blade, like a like a like a <laughs> disposable razor, and he just he broke the top off and just gigged himself with the actual like shaving razor. <laughs> yeah, that sounds like Jim. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And two hundred and ninety pounds, pretty solid. Yeah. It, it, that's a scary six combination. Foot six, whatever the hell he was. Yeah, but he bailed on the South Africa tour, so uh, Cyrus called me up and and said, "You want to go?" And so mm-hmm. I, I got to go and wrestle Gamma Singh at uh, Westridge Stadium again in front of ten thousand people that wanted to kill me. Um, <laughs> completely crapped the bed in that match, but it was. I got to go and I got yeah. to wrestle in England for Brian Dixon for one match. Okay, and uh, Can you yeah, do a Brian so, Dixon imitation. Uh, not really, <laughs> yeah. man. I'm not very good at. <laughs> it. I can't remember. Yeah. He's, he's got a certain way of talking. I can't. Robbie Brookside does a great Brian Dixon. I, I've heard yeah. his, and yeah, I don't yeah. even want to touch it because yeah, yeah, it's yeah. been done perfect. But yeah, you know, I got to see a little bit of the world and better than I deserved, quite frankly, because I was always mediocre at best. But uh, you know, but, and, but then about what about MMA? If you were going to Pancras, did you ever branch out and do more? Or did you realize it was just a short term thing for you? Uh, well, I developed quickly physically, and the Japanese guys saw that, which is why they let me stay at their dojo and train with them, and you know, get tied in knots by Minoru Suzuki every day. But I didn't develop mentally as quickly. Like I, I know there are fights that I look back on, and I was just walking to the ring already mentally defeated, mm. where I should have had a chance to win that fight, and I didn't. And there's so that's so much a part of it is you have to be <sighs> mentally positive and. Absolutely, it's yeah. huge. I mean, it's like if you're you're doing a WrestleMania match, you, if you're thinking, "Oh, this match is going to suck," yeah, yeah, before you walk yeah, out right, there, well, yeah, right, it's going right. to suck. Whereas, right. you know, even if you've got a horrible opponent who's completely green, if you go out there thinking, "I'm going to polish this turd as much as I can, I'm going to make this great," then you got a very good chance of making it great. Mm-hmm. And so, it took me a long time to learn that, but I did. I, I wrestled four times, or I fought four times in Japan. Then Guy Mesger, who helped me out a ton before, like while I was in Japan, that guy really took me under his wing and, and helped me because I was freaking. He started a group called uh, World Pancreation Council in Texas, and he ran the first ever sanctioned MMA shows in Texas history. Mm. And I fought him on the first one. I fought Alex Andrade on the second one. And then uh, uh, my last MMA fight was my last fight of all because I moved into Muay Thai after that in British Columbia. And then in 2005, I had my last MMA fight and finally got a win on my MMA record. So it's your record? One in... Uh, one in six. <laughs> hey, you got one. Yeah. That's not I, bad. I won eight or seven uh, Muay Thai matches in between, though. Yeah, okay, so at least gotcha. I won something. But gotcha. yeah, it took me a while to get used to MMA. But that's the thing. Like, you, you've had a, a real kind of a, a varied life, a lot of cool stuff you've done. Talk about wrestling and talk about the, the, the MMA. And um, we're going to talk about your books that you wrote when we were bouncers, because obviously you were a bouncer as well. But I just happened to glance the uh, back of the second one, because there's two books here. Uh, Paul the Mauler Lazenby is a former bouncer, MMA champion, pro wrestler, current actor, stuntman 
whose career highlights include having his nose broken by Steve Austin, teaching Vin Diesel how to take a suplex, farting on Noel Wilde by accident, and farting on Steven Seagal on purpose. That so I, I want you to, discuss, to, to, to uh, explain all four of those stories. Okay, so having your nose broken by Steve Austin, because you're Steve's stunt double in quite a few projects. Yeah, I doubled him on six movies. Um, he signed a, a multi-picture deal, and they shot all the stuff in Vancouver. So on, uh, on the in the Vancouver stunt community, I'm the guy who's got the the best skill set and look to double him bald with a yet goatee yeah we, it's weird we've even got the same shaped skull so like they were saying <laughs> they, they can shoot us and shoot me in profile and it still looks like steve where they can't do that with a lot of doubles right but yeah one of one of his doubles on the condemned was a sam greco who's one of the best kickboxers ever i've heard that name yeah. but sam's got this giant beak like this huge nose so like there's no way you're shooting him in profile man uh so the first but the first time i worked with steve was on the movie damage his first time in vancouver and i was actually there was another guy doubling him and i was playing one of his opponents so he, uh, the whole day was fighting with this dude who was flinching away from him. And uh, you, again, I'm, something I'm sure you've seen a million times in the ring where if a guy's flinchy, you know, he's, he's got to stay in the pocket when yeah. you're throwing punches and kicks and trust that you're not going to kill him. And if he's flinching, then it, it messes things up. So Steve got in the habit of kind of having to lunge forward a little bit to close enough distance that there wasn't air between the punch and the head. Then after all day of this, I'm in there and he's got this habit that he's been forming all day and I just stayed in the pocket. So we went through the fight a couple of times, and then finally he just came about an inch too close and swung this big barn door left hand and took my nose and put it under my left eye. Oh. <laughs> and uh, I still remember it just went kunk, and I just thought it was a good solid shot to the head. And he kind of froze and looked at me, and I just went, dude, keep going, because I wanted to save the take. Yeah, yeah. And we finished the fight, and everything was good, and there was about a five-second gap, and all of a sudden I felt my nose start to drip, and then boom. Here it comes, yeah. Yeah, and it was completely the, just one of the worst breaks I've ever had. <laughs> Steve felt horrible, but I, I made sure he knew. It's just accidents happen. I've clipped guys in fights, sure, too. Sure. And uh, afterward, when he finally found out I was okay and he was sure I was all right, uh, the medics were working on me to stop the bleeding. And Steve comes over, and he's got his arm in a sling and an ice pack on his hand, and he goes, you guys want to stop messing around with lazing me and help me with these bruised knuckles? <laughs> So what's the protocol on that? Like, does 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 Steve send you a card, or is it just like shake hands and let's go to the next next stunt? Like, is it is it cool when that happens? You know, does, yeah. Does the star go out of his way to do anything, or is it just like we're all good? It depends on who the star is. Gotcha. You know, I've seen cases where where actors did legitimate permanent damage to a stuntman and just walked away, Oof. and that's that's part of the job of a stuntman. You know, yeah. if that happens, well, that's that's an occupational hazard. Uh, in Steve's case, uh, he was he was. You know, he called me the next day. That's cool. Yeah. We went out for a beer that night. Gotcha. Um, you know, we, we've become really good friends since then. But he was, you know, he must have apologized. Seven. I had to tell him, dude, you don't have to apologize Enough. anymore. Yeah. Like, yeah, <laughs> t- it, it really is cool, man. Like, it's uh, seriously, it, it's part of the job. And it's proof that if a guy like Steve Austin, who's done simulated combat his whole life and is really, really good at it, can clip somebody, anybody can. It can happens. Happen. Yeah, yeah. You know, I'm, you've seen the same thing in the ring, man. It's like no matter how good the performers are, every once in a while somebody's going to send one through. I um, did a movie in Mexico in 93 with Roddy Piper. It was called Immortal <laughs> Combat. And Art Barr took us down there and because uh, he was friends with Roddy from Portland. And so I never met Roddy Piper, obviously. He was like, oh, my God, it's Roddy Piper. So uh, once again, in fine Hart Brothers Jericho training fashion, I'm just hanging around. So they say, well, you wanna, do you want to do some stunt work? Do you want to do a fight scene? And it was with this guy called Sonny Chiba. Who's, oh, dude, I, I forgot Sonny Chiba was in that. Sonny Chiba. So uh, it was my only stunt experience. And it started out where you do the fight scene and the first five or six takes he is just he, like not even touching me the kick is right up on my nose and you just feel this 
take eight, nine, and ten. That dude was kicking me right in the face because <laughs> he started to get tired, and he's like sixty, and I'm like, oh my god. And of course, I'm like, it's gonna look great on camera. And you watch it, and I was in it for like a second. Literally, you have to pause it. You see, like my blonde wavy hair, uh, wavy hair, and that was it. But that's that's what happens. Like you can get clipped as the takes go on. That's just the way it goes. And sometimes you have to do it on purpose. I mean, yeah. I was uh, in Star Trek Beyond. There's a character called Hyder, uh, which was played by a guy named Fraser Aitchison for three out of the four days. But he couldn't make the fourth day, so I stepped in. And I'm fighting uh, Sophia Botella, who I believe is a star of The Mummy now, and she was okay, yeah. she was the legless assassin in in uh, Kingsman. Uh-huh. And uh, She's a badass martial artist. She did all her own fighting mm. and is really good at it. But because the costume was so restrictive and my vision was so impaired and everything, I couldn't really be sure that I was going to be in the right place for the kick and there would be too much air. So I had to lean into it. I had mm. to tell her, like, look, you're just the spin kick. You're going to have to send it in. Mm-hmm. And so, like, eight takes. Just lean in and take this <laughs> kick to the head. You got to do it on purpose. Justin and so good. Thousands of summer deals at your Nordstrom Rack Store. Save up to 60% on new arrivals from Vince, Rag & Bone, Adidas, Joe's, Marc Jacobs, and more. Great brands, great prices every day at Nordstrom Rack. But hurry for first dibs. Get your summer favorites up to 60% off at Nordstrom Rack today. Great brands, great prices. That's why you rack. What's the most dangerous stunt that you've ever done? I think it was the first time I doubled Steve, and um, I mean I've done high work where you know the cable snaps, you die. But generally, the what does basic, high work mean? Like you're doing uh, something in like, like 30, 40 stories off the ground. Oh, um, like having a fight like on a building or something. Or, yeah, gotcha. and, and I did a, what's called a descender, where you're on a cable and they basically drop you in almost well a little bit past terminal velocity mm-hmm. into a pool uh, on a wire. But you're, you're moving fast enough that if something goes wrong, you're, you're mm-hmm. going to die. Uh, but I think the, the most dangerous one was doing what's called an air ram. It's a compressed air catapult that you step on and it throws you. And uh, to show you how powerful these things are, the first time I rode an air ram, I was 260 pounds, and that thing was easily throwing me seven feet up and 30 feet forward. Wow. And it wasn't even dialed up all the way. So that would be, for example, like if there's an explosion or something and the guy gets catapulted yeah. in the air or whatever, right? And they're incredibly dangerous because if you ride them the wrong way, if your knee's not locked right, if your body weight isn't exactly where it needs to be, then then you can destroy your leg, you can get thrown up in the air. People have even died going off air rams wrong. Wow. So I had to do a backwards air ram away from an exploding car that was in a driveway. The, the scene was that Steve, he drives up and his, his wife and daughter are trapped in an exploding car and he's trying to get them out and then the car blows up and he gets thrown up and back and onto the lawn of the adjacent house. So we're rehearsing this into high jump pads, which are really thick, and I almost broke my neck doing that. I landed wrong on one of the rehearsals and my body folded over and I heard my neck just go, mm-hmm. and I, I thought my neck was broken. Like It was a relief mm-hmm. that my hands and feet still worked. Had to rehearse it a few more times after that. And then on the day, all of a sudden, all these new variables come in. Like it, as, as bad as the rehearsal was, now it starts to rain. So the, the lid of the air ram is going to be wet. So I've got to be worried about my feet slipping off. Uh, I've got a buddy on the trigger. So if our timing isn't perfect, if I start launching my body too early or if he hits the button too early or too late, then that's going to go bad. Then they're blasting flames in my face. So I have to have fire gel in my eyes shut. Then they say, oh, while you're in the air, can you turn your head away from camera so we don't see your face? Oh all gosh. these things get thrown in. And then they said, oh, yeah, by the way, we're seeing the lawn, so we can't give you pads anymore. Mm. So I got to land on my head mm. on the lawn. Yeah. So and that was the gag, like up and back six feet uh, or six feet off the ground, or like 15 feet back mm. and landing on my head and rolling through. 
So it was a real high pressure thing. But my buddy Chad Bellamy on the trigger did a perfect job and everything went well. So I just got some mild whiplash and it was all good. But this is your job is is doing this. Like when you became a stuntman, is there like a course that you have to take or like, how, like how do you get into the biz? It depends on where you get in. I know uh, in England, they're specific, they're particularly strict. Yeah. Uh, you have to be certified in three or four different things on the on this long list of skills that, that they say you have to have. In Vancouver, it's quite the opposite. You can just walk into the business if you know the right people, mm. uh, which, you know, it's a good thing for guys like me because I came in with a, a skill set. You know, pro wrestling does translate mm, if sure. you modify some things, but there are some people that end up out of their depth pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. uh, so it basically, you just have to build a skill set that warrants you coming in and also showing that you know enough to learn and have the right attitude that you can learn more. Mm -hmm. So we have an incredibly eclectic community in Vancouver where we got people who come out of, I, I know a guy who grew up in the favelas of Brazil and did capoeira his whole life. He's a stuntman. A guy who did wushu his whole life in China. He's a stuntman, you know, competitive trampoline artists and Everyone's martial got their artists. own skills yeah. and their master that they're master And then you come of, and yeah. you build on that. You learn how to drive. You learn, like, I, I learned to ride a horse and ride a motorcycle just because I was a stuntman. I needed it. You have work. to. Yeah. yeah. Right, right, right. So uh, how did you, why were you teaching Vin Diesel how to take a suplex? Oh, that was in uh, the Chronicles of Riddick. And uh -huh. I, I was uh, on the, the stunt team for that the rehearsal to rap. It's the first show I worked on all the way through. And uh, we were going over different fight scenes and stuff. And there is one scene where uh, Vin is just carving his way through this bunch of what they call necromonger soldiers on this ash planet. And it's like a gauntlet of guys and he's just slaughtering them all. Uh, I got killed actually three times in that scene. <laughs> I'll, I'll get killed and then run around behind the camera and then go back and get killed again. Soldier number three, soldier yeah. number four. Yeah. And at the end, uh, they, I was, we were kind of spitballing in it. And I said, look, you know, what, what about a suplex? Like, he's supposed to be a kind of a brutal guy. What about if he starts throwing people around? And they asked me what it meant. So I showed them a vertical suplex and, and we, we talked it over. Like and, a pro wrestling Yeah, vertical, just straight up pro wrestling David vertical suplex. Yeah. 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 And uh, they liked the idea of him taking it and reversing the suplex and throwing me onto a rock. So it actually made the movie, you know. Mm -hmm. I, so uh, his stunt double, uh, he had two stunt doubles, Troy Robinson and Tim Connolly, and uh, Tim ended up doing the the actual suplex part. But Vin actually went up for it, and he, I went up and held him, and then put him down, and we do the rest with Tim. And uh, as you know, like a vertical suplex is kind of a dodgy thing to take yeah, for a lot of weird, people. Yeah. There's a lot more to it taking it than people realize. I'm not they, a fan of taking it, to be honest with you. No, it, it, it's weird. Yeah, I don't like it. Yeah. But, uh, you know, he fully committed. You know, he trusted me and he got it right away. Like the first I, I talked him through it. And then the first time we did it, he got it and he, he stalled it up there and stayed up as long as I wanted him there. <laughs> okay. And then you uh, pretended to fart. Oh, and you farted on Noah Wild by accident? Yeah, that was on Falling Skies. And, and actually, that was right before I started doing DDP yoga. And that was that was actually the day where I was thinking, I really have to do something because my back had gotten so bad that every day I was on set, I was thinking, this might be my last day. Mm. And in that scene, uh, I had to be tackled from behind by Noah Wild, And then we had a fight scene after that, like a five or six beat fight. And he was doing everything right. You know, he's coming in and tackling me the right way. And, but still, like, even though everything was all going right, my back was just killing me and stuff. So uh, I don't know what I had eaten at catering, but that combined with the pain in my back, about four takes in, he came running in and all over him just as he tackled me from behind. And thank God there was like a six-beat fight. Afterward, to kind of fan the flames and stuff and just divert attention away from the horrible thing that just happened. Then you, But you farted on Steven Seagal on purpose. Yes. Uh, that was, again, I had just been, I had food poisoning or something. Mm -hmm. I was really sick. And I had to come in and, and double somebody and... and I have to lead this by saying that personally, I've never had a bad experience with Steven Seagal trying to hurt me, but you're not going to find a lot of stuntmen that say that. Really? You, you will find a lot of stuntmen. He's got a bad reputation, doesn't he? Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah he, he does have a reputation for being rough with his stunt guys. And meaning what? Like in a fight scene, he'll punch you for real? Yes. And yeah. why? 
Uh, I no control. That's, that's or just, Steven Seagal question. Gotcha. Um, or like a wrestler who's just stiff. Yeah, I I don't know if he's doing it on purpose or I I can't believe that he doesn't have the skill to control himself because he actually is like his hand speed's very good and his his hand eye coordination is very good from doing Aikido for fifty years, mm-hmm. but. Yeah, a lot of stunt guys have gotten hurt by Seagal. So mm-hmm. I, I am I am not one of them, but a lot of them have. So uh, we were doing a fight scene, and <laughs> he also likes to change things at the last second. So I'm doing the standard dumb movie bad guy thing where I'm six inches from his face holding a gun in his face instead of doing it from across the room. <laughs> yeah. And they got a three, two, one countdown, and then we've got this sequence that we're going to go through. And they're going, three, two, one, and they're just about to say go. And he goes, yeah, I don't know what I'm going to do. Just follow me. And then they go, action. So like, oh my God, there, there is no way in the world I'm going to let this guy do whatever he wants. Because he's a legit like badass, right? If, if you give him your arm, he will break it in seven pieces. Gotcha. Yeah, he's, yeah. he's he can do that. Yeah, yeah. He is very good with Aikido skills. And he's a huge guy. He's like 6'6 six, six and over 300 pounds. Mm. So as soon as he touched me, I just launched myself into the wall. <laughs> he touched me again and launched myself over this furniture. And he loved it because it made him look good. But then at the end of the fight scene, he's got me bent over a table and he's kind of leaning up against me in the uh, in an inappropriate position. <laughs> and he's uh, handcuffing my hands behind my back and the, the camera's on us like from the waist up. And he, he starts doing this compliance move where he stands on the side of my ankle. Mm. And that's, it's a, it's really painful. And it's something you do if somebody's fighting you a little bit and you, you give them some. And no else one can thing. see it anyways. Exactly. The right. camera's not seeing it. So at that point, like, I'm thinking, okay, I've been holding in this fart for the entire fight scene. <laughs> and his, his leg is pressed right up against the crack of my ass. So I'm like, you know what? Screw it. If he's going to stand on my ankle, I'm going to let him have it. And I guarantee you, he felt the heat. There was no noise because he was pressed up against me. I guarantee he felt the heat. <laughs> oh, man. So let's talk about, uh, uh, I mean, I'm sure there's a million more stories you can tell me about Stuntman, but let's talk a little about your books, which is another cool thing. You, you've written both these books, two parts, When We Were Bouncers. How did you get the idea uh, to do this? It was just something I was rolling around in my head because I worked as a bouncer on and off for about 20 years. In fact, I, I believe I was either your or Lance's replacement at Malarkey's, Malarkey's. In, in Calgary when yeah. you guys quit. <laughs> uh, but I was thinking that bouncers have such crazy, insane stories, and yet I've never seen a book about bouncers that did well. And I was wondering why that was and trying to find a way to, to market these stories. And then I realized bouncers kind of have a negative association. It's kind of like, rightly or wrongly, a lot of people don't like cops for the same reason. Because usually when you deal with a cop, it's not a good situation for yourself. Whereas, you know, firefighters, everybody loves them because when you deal with a firefighter, right. usually it's a good thing for yourself. So bouncers are the guys that are beating you up or telling you you can't come in or whatever. And I realized I've been really lucky. I mean, I know people like you. I know people like UFC champion Boss Root, and I know movie stars. I know a lot of famous people who used to be bouncers, right. and that's the connection for the reader, is even if you don't like bouncers, well, yeah, but I like Chris Jericho, I like Boss, I like you, Samoa Joe. And so that's the hook that's gonna get people to listen to these stories. And once they read the stories, then then I, I was pretty confident they'd be hooked from there. So where did you start as far as getting some of these stories and some of these famous people to? Uh, well, initially it was contacting people I already knew. Uh, I talked to you and Lance, and I talked to Boss Rutten. Uh, you, know, you were guys that I really wanted to get because you're high-profile guys. Uh, and then I started cold contacting people, and that's where I got really surprised. Uh, people who are ex- extremely established in mixed martial arts, extremely established in the show business and wrestling, who I didn't know. But I would say, you know, Boss Rutten's involved in this, and that would kind of, or I'd mm-hmm. say Chris Jericho's involved in this, and that would get them to at least listen to me. And it shocked me that, pretty much everybody with only one exception immediately jumped on board. Hmm. They said, I love the idea. never heard of anything like it. I want to do it. And so I would get the, these stories from people that I had no idea I would get stories from. Who, who said no? 
uh, Barry Darso, uh, Demolition Smash. And he didn't say no, but I just sent him a request, and I got a two-word response. How much? <laughs> and, and, and I don't have a budget for interviews. So I said, thank you very much. Your time is money. I understand. So okay. That's not really how it works. Yeah. You don't get paid to do an interview. <laughs> so, uh, so tell me, like, is there some stories that you from, from your experiences yes. in the books? Tell uh, us some of your experiences. I gave myself uh, a chapter in When We Were Bouncers 1 just because this is a story that I... I haven't really heard anything like it from any anybody else. And I think every bouncer's got one story like that. But it involved a, a buddy of mine named Johnny who... Um, it's funny because, you know, your song Judas is just doing crazy really well right now. That could pretty much be Johnny's story. He was he was a really good guy, but he eventually... He was so crazy that he eventually fell off and, and just destroyed his whole life because of his demons. But mm -hmm. at the time the story took place, he was still kind of a solid guy and just insane. So a great guy to have around. White guy with dreads in like 92 when no white guys <laughs> yeah, had dreads. Yeah, yeah. About 230 pounds, just a big lump of muscle. And this guy had... Uh, his name was uh, Vern Milano had started a huge brawl. I was running security at a club called Revolution, which had a, a huge capacity. It was, it was a converted roller rink. So if you had a fight, you could have 100 people involved in wow, it. Wow, so it's like a big yeah. roadhouse brawl. And uh, there was a really bad situation kicked off by Vern where it was me and Johnny against like 20 guys. And so we put Vern on the on the excrement list, so to speak. And, <laughs> and, uh, and Johnny told him, look, if you come back, I'm going to sodomize you. And yeah, and, and Vern started laughing and he said, no, no, dude, I'm serious. I'm very, very serious. That is exactly what is going to happen if you come back to this bar ever again. So six weeks later, I guess Vern thought that things had blown over and he came back and Johnny dragged him out back. And I thought he was just going to beat him up because I forgot about the threat. You know, guys say stuff like that all the yeah, time. Yeah, yeah. And he chokes Vern out, puts him down on the ground, and then he starts unbuckling his belt. <laughs> unbuckling Vern's belt and pulling his pants down. I'm like, oh, no, 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 no. And this is in the, in the lot outside <laughs> yeah. behind the bar. So nobody's seeing this. I'm like, Johnny, Johnny, <laughs> and he pulls Vern's pants down and hikes him up so he's like cheek to the gravel and ass to this guy and uh, then he takes a condom out of his pocket and leaves it unrolls it leaves it on the ground beside Vern's face steps around behind him and like a field goal kicker punts Vern right square in the anus as hard as he can still, Vern's still unconscious and then he unzips his fly and takes his, his junk out and just lets it hang there and waits and Vern wakes up looks over sees the condom when he wakes up and then goes oh reaches back and holds his butt and then looks over his shoulder and there's johnny zipping up his pants <laughs> winking at him and walking inside he never saw <laughs> never Vern in the bar him. again yeah, never told yet so tell me some of the stories that you liked from from the two books uh i i liked uh what i like are the stories where which is most of them uh where i managed to preserve the voice of the bouncer like boss rootin i mean if you ever heard that guy talk he's he's a he's a human cartoon character mm -hmm. he's so much fun to listen to and i've had a lot of people say when i hear boss's voice in my head when when i'm reading the chapter and he's got i think he's the greatest bouncer of all time yeah but i i don't really want to translate his stories because the way he tells them is so crazy uh henzo gracie who kicks off uh, the first book uh, I almost turned cartwheels when I got him on the phone because he's a Brazilian dude and I love Brazilians. I got loads of Brazilian friends, but like those guys cannot keep a schedule at all. <laughs> They're never on time. So I'm, I'm chasing Henzo forever. One of the nicest guys ever, by the way. And finally he gets in touch. He goes, okay, dude, I got 15 minutes right now. I call him up first words out of his mouth. When I was 14 years old, I was a bouncer in a whorehouse in the Amazon. Like, oh, my God, this is going to be so awesome. <laughs> so that's the first story of the first book, one of my favorites. So what happened to him when he was when he was 14 in the Amazon? Uh, he was just him and his buddy, his 16-year-old buddy, saved up some money to uh, go have a good time. And uh, and then some other customer didn't want to pay one of the ladies after uh, he'd done his thing. 
So Henzo and his friend just tuned the guy up, like headbutt him, knocked the because he he had headbutted the in-house bouncer and knocked yeah, him out. Yeah. They jumped on him, and you know Henzo even at fourteen had been grown up doing doing jujitsu, so he choked the guy out cold. And they went, "Okay, you're hired." And so at fourteen years old, he's living in a whorehouse, <laughs> gets free services from the ladies. You know, he, says, he said that was, was part a, of the part of the benefits. That was now. part of the deal. He got free food and and uh, and services of the ladies. <laughs> So who else, uh, and so who, who are some of the other people that, that gave uh, some good stories? In book two, one of the chapters that stands out for me, there's a lot of them, but uh, uh, MVP, uh, the uh, former Intercontinental Champion, I believe Tag Team Champion. Mm -hmm. I'm still not sure exactly what his name is. Uh, it's, it's, I just call him ha M. Yeah, Hassan Assad. He's, he's, he's Hassan Assad, but yeah. he's also like Alvin. He's got all these different yeah, names. That's right. He was Alvin something. This, first, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's and, Hassan yeah. Assad. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, it, right, now, right now it's Hassan. Yeah. Um, but his chapter, just because... Every story he told me pretty much involved some other major celebrity. And it wasn't just that, oh, this person came out of the bar, had a drink and left. Like in-depth stories about Mike Tyson and DJ Khalid and Shannon Doherty and Kimbo Slice. The Kimbo one I really loved because I knew Kimbo. Mm -hmm. uh, and I was going back and forth. Again, it was just his schedule so crazy. It was, it was I was trying to get him for- With M or with Kimbo? With Kimbo. I gotcha. And uh, I was trying to get Kimbo for book two, and I was talking to his manager, Icy Mike, and, and just the best guy. And then Kimbo died before mm -hmm. I could get his story. So I wanted to commemorate him in the book. I've got a dedication to him at, at the beginning of the book. But then when, when MVP told me, oh, yeah, I worked with Kimbo. Here's a story about him. It was so great because he's such a, a good guy. I, I want to I make sure he's remembered as much mm -hmm. as I can, I can help. Well, tell the Kimbo story. Uh, <laughs> Kimbo and... Okay, Kimbo and MVP don't look anything alike. They're they're yeah. both black guys, and that's where the similarity yeah, yeah. ends. Different shades of black, even. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Kimbo's really dark, mm -hmm. and, and M's a lighter skin, mm -hmm. and yeah, the features are totally different too. So at one point, uh, M gets called to the front door, and uh, there's a cop outside, and he goes, "Yeah, these two uh, Hispanic gentlemen here say uh, you punched one of them in the face." And now he's he's standing at the door just on the inside of the threshold. The other guys are on the outside of the threshold. So he's still in the bar. And he said he's wondering what's going on because he's never been outside the whole night. Like, I haven't even seen these two guys before. There's no way I punched one of these guys in the face. And at one point, he looks to his left. And there's Kimbo, giant Kimbo, trying to hide behind a potted plant inside the doorway. <laughs> and he leans out and goes, shh. <laughs> and I'm thinking... How could you confuse me for Kimbo? Come on, man! You couldn't pick us out of the lineup uh, as being separate guys. <laughs> There's a. Uh, um, it's funny because when you're a bouncer, uh, I remember like my job was I used to have to walk through and uh, have a little clicker and count how many people were in the bar, <laughs> and I could never get it right. I would either come around with like 75, or I'd come around with like 450, and the actual count would be like, there's 200 people here, there's 250. I could never get it right, because all I wanted to do as a bouncer, all I did was sit in the back, listen to tunes, and talk to girls. That was my thing. I never really wanted to get into a fight, unless there had to be one. You were smarter than most of us then. Yeah, I just I, I was there for the chicks. That's why I got into bouncing. You know. Well, that, that's what amazed me is that they didn't get. It. it doesn't amaze me that that was a job that was you you couldn't focus on. It's that like anybody who knew you for more than a couple of days would realize, okay, Jericho's going to have the clicker, then he's going to see a hot girl or a song he likes is going to come <laughs> yeah, on, and we're going to lose them. Yeah, I, just, and yeah. I, I literally just lose my my train of thought. <laughs> and it's like you know, you go to this section, okay, one, two, three, four, six, seven, eight, five. Oh, there's a chick. 
Yep. Oh shoot! Now I got to start over again. <laughs> did I count that guy already? Do I count this guy? What do I do? You know. And then another thing that I did uh, as well because I was really, uh, as I am still obsessed with Kiss and Kiss Alive. Paul Stanley talks about uh, uh, the intro for Cold Gin. He talks about you know I had some vodka and orange juice. <laughs> so I always wanted to have vodka and orange juice when I was old enough to start drinking, or when I started drinking when I was like fourteen, like vodka and orange juice because Paul Stanley made it sound so cool. So I would go to the bar and that would be what I would drink during the night. He'd give me a Paul Stanley I'd say to the bartender and everyone in the place knew what a Paul Stanley was vodka and orange juice and then a Gene Simmons was a rum and coke uh, a uh, gin, and, gin and tonic was an Ace Fraley and then there wasn't a Peter Chris because no one cares about him <laughs> So. There's one thing you haven't mentioned since reading the book that I wonder if you noticed is that uh, right before I sent the final uh, edit off to the formatter to get done, uh, an idea hit me. So all the subtitles of stories in your chapter are the titles of Kiss I caught that. That's oh, great. Cool. Yeah, okay. I, I was wondering if you got Cold Jan and you, you wanted the best. I thought that was really, really cool. Because they all had different titles. And then just the last second, I'm like, I have never met anybody who's into Kiss as much as Chris. <laughs> and they got so many songs out there that there must <laughs> be appropriate. Good. So you didn't do that for all the all the stories, just for my chapter? No, that was, was just that? for your chapter alone. Gotcha. So uh, who's the biggest names that you have in this book? You talk about Baz Rutan. You talk about MVP. You talk about Jericho. Yeah. Uh, Theo Rossi from Sons of Anarchy and what, Luke Cage. What was his there? story? Oh man, he was—he had this big crew of guys that uh, I think he—he he comes from New York. Mm -hmm. So when he moved to LA, anybody who makes that move will tell you you've been in both places. There's a very big difference in the way people think. <laughs> yeah, East Coast to West Coast, and the East Coast people—they're more inclined to just go straight to violence. Mm -hmm. So uh, yeah, he rolled in with a big crew of guys, including his best friend Mona, who's like 350 pounds at six foot one, just a monster. And they basically annihilated the first bar they were at. And everybody was in shock. He said the worst thing wasn't the, the damage they did to the people who deserved it. It was the reaction. It was like, what? what just, I acted like an asshole all night, but why are you punching me in the face? Because that's the way we do it where we come from, man. But he, I, I like Theo's chapter. It's different because he gets very, um, very cerebral, mm -hmm. very philosophical. And he goes into a lot of the reasons for violence and a lot of the causes of violence. You know, being in that situation, going from East Coast to West Coast, made him analyze everything. And so you really get his perspective on why people behave the way they behave and, and mm -hmm. the differences between the way it's dealt with. And I saw that Steve uh, Steve Austin did the forward for the first book, maybe the second, second book. Yes. Was he ever a bouncer? Was Steve? Was he you know what? Stories? That broke my heart. I thought for sure Steve yeah. would have been a bouncer, man. And uh, he, he says he never bounced uh, because he bounced, I think, one night his whole life. Mm -hmm. And uh, initially, I, I went from like the greatest emotional high to the greatest emotional low in one second because he goes, oh, yeah, I bounced one night at a Slayer concert. I thought, oh, something happened at a Slayer concert. He goes, yeah, nothing happened. Like, <laughs> the end. What? Everybody came in, threw up devil horns, and went home. Oh, my <laughs> God, this is heartbreaking. And that's why he would have been in book one, but uh, I was asking him about writing the foreword, and he, again, being a busy guy and everything, it just it never came together. But when I sent him the first book, you know, he called me right away and said, dude, I've, I've I don't read books front to back. I barely read books at all. It's just not my thing. He said, I, I plowed through this one in one sitting. I want to write the forward for the second one, which was That's great. music to my ears, man. I really appreciate him doing it. And I see CM Punk on the back here. Yeah. How do you know Punk? Um, or do you? I, I, I do, yeah. We, we talk a lot online, and I flew out to uh, Cleveland to watch this UFC fight. Oh. Um, yeah, he's a really good guy. He just We just started... I think just because we got a lot of mutual friends, mm -hmm. uh, we started talking on on Twitter and then started following each other and, and just struck up a friendship that way. 
And yeah, he just he took it upon himself to. I asked him if he wanted to copy the book. He read it and he took it upon himself to really pump it up. And and he's been supportive of volume two as well. You know, he uh, and he's an honest guy too. He's I like bouncing my ideas off people that aren't going to spare my feelings. Mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. and he strikes me as one of those guys. You definitely are. Mm-hmm. Where if it sucks, you're going to go, dude. That sucks. Mm-hmm. You know, fix it this way. And uh, yeah, so you know, hearing good feedback from a guy like that, you know, encourages me that I'm onto something. How did you get these published? Are they self-published or yeah, punch, punch in a face publications? Punch in a face publications. That's my own. You uh, better laugh. Publications. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it's. Uh, I'm glad we we live in the internet age because it's made things a lot easier. Um, I, I was talking to Sam Sheridan, a really good friend of mine, who wrote three best-selling books. Uh, he's also a fighter. Um, his wife just directed Wonder Woman, actually, mm. Patty Jenkins. So there's a lot of talent in that family. And mm-hmm. Sam is definitely one of those guys where he has looked me right in the face and go, dude, that idea just sucks mm-hmm, ass. Mm-hmm. It's horrible. And uh, I, he told me the publishing industry is two to three years behind the times at all times. So when you're trying to pitch these ideas, you're usually pitching them to publishing executives or literary agents who don't really have their finger on the pulse at all. And I, I had people look at when we were bouncing and go, ah, I don't really see any money in the idea. But it was only those people, like mm-hmm. literary agents. Anybody who was actually creative loved it right off the bat. Hmm. So then I found out about uh, CreateSpace, which is owned by Amazon. And you can basically publish yourself. They'll they'll print individual copies for you. You don't have to buy giant piles of books. For order sort of thing? Yeah. Hmm. And... Uh, I got a really good formatter for my ebook and a really good formatter for the, the print copy. And then it's distributed through Amazon and it's linked to all the major distribution networks. So basically any bookstore that can access James Patterson or can access Stephen King can also access my book if somebody wants it ordered in. Or you can order it straight off Amazon as well. Have you had some good uh, response? Have people been buying the books? It's been great. I, I did a lot of research on self-published books, and, and it's not encouraging. I mean, most self-published books die within the first couple of months. Mm-hmm. And sales, uh, I believe when we were bouncers, one has been out for a little over a year and a half, and sales have been consistent. Mm-hmm. And actually, they've gone up since two came out, mm. and two has been doing really well as well. So Yeah, well, they're, a- they're, they're great books, and, and, and obviously, you can pick that up on Amazon. We'll, we'll talk about that uh afterwards where you can actually get them but they're re- it's a really cool concept and it's fun because there's it's like you said 30 or 40 different guys in each uh in each book all telling their stories some that you know some that you don't but they're all uh they're all fun you know experiences of being a uh, being a uh, on the on the front lines of the bar bar biz <laughs> but something that, that you said you mentioned that you flew flew to punk's uh, fight in cleveland you fly around quite a bit to go to different shows i remember i think we almost saw you in toronto because you were there to see yeah. the nxt show you flew to japan to see some shows there earlier this year you'd like to do that i always wanted to do that and i was always too broke to do it mm-hmm. you know it's i think it's because when i was a kid uh one of the things my parents did very right is take us all over the world mm-hmm. you know, I, I was in africa when i was 11. wow I was, I was in england when i was 12 and 13 and so i got wanderlust i got i mean i'm sure you obviously mm-hmm. have it too because you, you picked uh you know three or four different professions <laughs> yeah. that all take you all over the world and it's a great thing to do. So I always wanted to be able to do that. I'd hear about, you know, you're, you're doing something in New York or like there's a wrestling show in Japan or mm-hmm. something. And, and I want to see it, but I, I never had the money. And I'm finally in a, a good situation in my career where I can just say, yeah, I, I want to go see Wrestle Kingdom at the Tokyo Dome and, and go. You know, I, I want to, you know, come down to Seattle and see a Fozzie concert. I can go. You know, it's mm-hmm. it, my, my schedule is such that it's so erratic that I have a lot of free time and, and it pays well enough I can do it. So I love it. And you're a big NXT fan? Yes. Yeah, very much so. Why is that? What do you like about it? 
I think it brought wrestling back to wrestling uh, mm-hmm. under the WWE umbrella. I, I think it was, uh, you know, it's my, I don't have insider knowledge, but it's my impression that this was very much Triple H's idea. And I think it was a very, very good one. It's a wrestling show and it's very mm-hmm. wrestling heavy. And, and, you know, there's something to be said for the, the storyline aspect and, you know, what, what SmackDown does and what Raw does. But I connect more with old school. You know, most of the show is wrestling. Uh, and also, you don't see your big names every week, so you get a chance to get hungry for them next week. Uh, I think what William Regal and, and Triple H and, and everybody who's involved in NXT is doing is fantastic. I just love the product. Hmm, that's great, because yeah, you do fly around a bit. What about the Japan, the Wrestle Kingdom? How is that going there? Because that was the Tokyo Dome show? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, that was that was cool. It, to be honest, I, I don't want to sound like a douche by saying this, but to be honest, it is kind of tough to sit in the crowd yeah, yeah, um, yeah. when when you're used to be, uh, being backstage <laughs> yeah. or, or being in the VIP section. So it, it was tough, and it says a lot for how dedicated the fans were because that was like a five-and-a-half-hour show. Mm-hmm. So it was, it's pretty grueling, but oh, my God. I mean, that was the show that had the first uh, Kenny Omega-Kazuchika-Okada match, mm-hmm. the, the six-star match as a main event, and, and there was some really, really amazing talent on that show. And it was just so great to be back in Japan. I mean, when, when I went to fight, I grew to really love it very quickly. I loved that country, but again, you know, after I stopped going, nobody was paying my way over there anymore, and I had no money. Mm-hmm. So being able to afford to fly over there and you know, stay at a nice hotel and see Tokyo again, it was just, it was fan- I loved every part of that trip, and, and yeah, definitely seeing that, and then going to the Corican show the next night, because there's traditionally uh january 4th is the tokyo dome show that's like new japan's version of wrestlemania and the night after they have a show called new year's dash mm-hmm. every year and that's kind of more a comedy show and multi-man tags and uh kyle o'reilly invited me to go there because he was wrestling on the show and just walking into korokan because that's where i had my last fight in japan mm-hmm. just blew me away as like, i had this huge like physical sensation of nostalgia when i walked in like wow man 20 years ago i fought here yeah, this is crazy dude, i haven't been to korokan in 20 years that was like the original old school texting i'd write a message for lenny on the wall, he'd write a message. You know, the next month, I'd go back and then write another message. But yeah, I hadn't been there in a long time either. That's a that's a cool, famous building there. You know, that's another thing that that tripped me out about Japan too is being connected to home. Because mm-hmm. uh, you remember from being in Japan in the '90s, when you were gone, you were gone. Yeah, like that's people didn't right. see you. Your friends didn't see you. You had to buy phone month. cards to call internationally. Yeah. Those little phone gimmick things. Work yeah. out what the time zone was. When, yeah, yeah, yeah. And now it's like somebody can text me just the same as they can right, right now. Right, right, right. That was kind of yeah, online, all that sort of stuff too. Last couple questions. Uh, going back to your wrestling, what was your favorite match that you ever had? Uh, easy, hands down. It was against Doctor Luther in Durban, South Africa. A mm-hmm. Two out of three falls match at the Westridge Stadium, and he gets. 99% of the credit for that. You know, that I at least I'd gotten to the point in that tour where I'd kind of knocked the rust off. I was really rusty at the beginning. And uh, we, uh, I botched a couple spots, but for the most part, uh, I was, I would still kind of crap myself at the concept of a long match. And uh, we went 45 minutes and it felt like 10. <laughs> and, you know, he just, he put together such a great match. And at the end of it all, it was funny because we, you know, we had these girls that we were hanging out with while we were there. And, and people had, who had kind of attached themselves to us that were hanging out with us and knew we were friends. And afterward, they were all coming up to us and going, dude, are you guys okay with each other? Like, they thought we were really <laughs> hot and we yeah, had yeah, really been yeah, trying yeah. to kill each other. So, yeah, thank you very much, Dr. Luther, because that easily best match of my career. And what's your favorite stunt you've ever done? Hmm, that's, that's a tough one, man. Um, farting on Seagal has to be up there. That's, <laughs> that's definitely on the list. Uh, I would probably say one of two. It would either be the air ram I was talking about before just because it was so... Yeah, it was so, such high pressure and so difficult. Uh, or the twenty floor descender. It was a the pilot of a TV series called Agent X. Um, stars a great guy named James Hapner and uh, and Sharon Stone. 
and I got thrown off the top of a 20 story building and it was, yeah, it was, it was a sphincter opener for sure. <laughs> you know, we had to do a lot of work at the top of just showing me going over the edge repeatedly. And, and just the idea that, uh, I'm hanging from a crane that's on the other side of a busy street. You know, the crane's going over the street and, and holding me up. And if one thing goes wrong, you know, it's not just whoops, it's, it's 20 floors See to think buddy. about it. And then yeah. splat. So, uh, it, it was a really tough gag and, and one that I'm particularly proud of. Do stuntmen, like, does that happen accidents? Have you been on set was when a stuntman passed away or? Yeah. Right before I got in the business, a gentleman named Mark Akerstream died on set. Oof. And, uh, and it was just the craziest thing. They, they blew up a boat like a quarter of a mile away and there was a car battery sitting on the boat that they didn't know about and so the boat blew up and they're all looking at the monitor a quarter mile away and, and everything okay yeah that went well and all of a sudden boom marks on the ground mm. and it's just this thing had flown that distance and hit him in the head mm. uh so stuff like that happens on set all the time i mean I, I got permanent eye damage and permanent vision damage my very first not just the first day of my career the first take the first time the cameras were ever rolling on me as a stuntman i got the whole side of my face caved in and permanent vision damage so from what um it was an actor who was training with boss root and the ufc champion and he just he got very excited during the fight scene, and and um, I think sometimes when you're training real fighting, you know, and Boss Rutten can show you how to really mess people up. Uh, sometimes it's easy to forget that there's a way to simulate it, punch somebody, and a way mm -hmm. to really punch someone. And uh, so with the choreography, I was throwing my head one way, and and he was sending a punch in with every ounce of his strength the other way. And I basically doubled the power of the punch with the way I was throwing my head, and it just completely shattered the whole side of my face. Oh man. So that's that's part, like you said, that's the danger. Yeah, it, it's weird. I mean, I fought two world champions in mixed martial arts, and and you know, I got a torn bicep out of one of the fights, but otherwise not too bad. And, mm -hmm. and then you know, just having a, a fake fight with a guy that's not really a fighter, and I get the whole side of my head cracked. You mentioned Vin Diesel and Seagal. Is there are those the biggest guys you've done work with, or is there a bigger star that you've that you've been been working? Uh, yeah, there, there's been quite a few. Uh, Will Smith, I worked with him on uh, on iRobot. Nice. Really nice guy. Uh, one thing on on. The Chronicles of Riddick really tripped me out was one day I showed up and I got my coffee and I'm just walking through the set and I realized before I finished that coffee, I had said hello to Keith David, who's, uh, I, I love that guy as an actor. How did the Franks get above the beans? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. I had said hello to him, I had said hello to Vin Diesel, and I had said hello to Dame Judy Dench. <laughs> uh, like, this is the best job ever. Uh, and last question, tell us about the time then you got uh, sodomized by a sea monster. Dude, will you let that go? Okay, I, okay, thank you for the platform because I want the truth to get out there, man. This is all the fault of a guy named Alex Ponovic. Yeah, Al, he used to be a bass player in a band called Specula Black, I believe, in That's Winnipeg. Right. Fellow yeah. Winnipeg native. Yeah, and this is the actual story. It, okay. It's from, from an... Because you did get screwed up the ass by a leg monster. I did not get screwed oh. up the ass by a leg monster. Okay. 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 Here we go. All right, here we go. This, this is the truth, <laughs> okay. ladies and gentlemen, and I hope this doesn't get edited off the show because I know you have control of that. <laughs> It was an, an epic movie that I think the Academy really should have considered for a Best Picture Oscar called Kraken Tentacles of the Deep. <laughs> From the title, you just know it was. Was it, was it a sci-fi channel? Yes, yeah, sci-fi. Obviously, channel. yeah, of course. So me and Alex are playing these thugs on this on this uh, this particular gem, and we both got to get killed by a giant squid. So my scene, in spite of what you will have people believe, involves me falling off the side of a boat and then getting dragged under the water and eaten, just mm -hmm. torn to pieces and eaten. Nothing sexual. <laughs> Alex's death was supposed to involve him having the tentacle rammed up his ass and come out of his mouth. 
and he vetoed that at the last second. How, how does he have the power to veto that? Uh, sometimes you do. It depends oh, okay. on the size of the project and, yeah. and also your your caliber, like where you are uh-huh. in the pecking order. But yeah. I guess he was high up enough the, the call sheet, and it was a he's a, high a enough small... to veto the sodomy exactly. by the uh, lake monster. Yeah, one or two notches down the call sheet, he might have been having to take it up. The... <laughs> so, but then because he vetoed it, then you had to do it, right? I did not do it. Nobody got sodomized by the lake monster. <laughs> is that the worst thing you've ever done? Uh, is, is that the worst project you've been a part of? Uh, no, that would probably go to a movie called Killer Punjabi, <laughs> which had a one night theatrical run. <laughs> it was self-financed by this, this dude, this, this Indian dude that just mm-hmm. couldn't act, couldn't, like what we were talking about before is one of those guys where it's like, I want to be a movie star, but I'm going to do nothing right, right. to find out or build my skills yeah. or anything. So he financed this movie with his own money and it was just horrible. Like the guy was, I, I, I think he might have actually been mentally challenged a little bit because he, he was so awkward. Yeah. He could barely get his lines out. I remember at times during fights, I would grab him by the shoulders and turn him a certain way and go, Stan, look over there, Stan. I'd be yelling at him. Um, my buddy Jason Day, he's a UFC veteran and now a stuntman, and, and my final death scene where the, the hero kills me off, he's he takes me out, and then I walk over to Jason, and I go, how did that look? He goes, basically, it looked like he was touching you, and then you were throwing yourself all over the place. <laughs> but yeah, that, that was... Killer I, Punjabi. Killer Punjabi was probably the worst movie I ever We can see that in. somewhere. Uh, yeah. yeah, it's, it's got to be out there somewhere. <laughs> yeah. Dude, great talking to you. Powerhouse Paul Laser, uh, who did, or maybe didn't get sodomized by a lake monster. Thank you. <laughs> All right, thanks to Paul Lazenby. You can get both of his books, When We Were Bouncers, famous actors, athletes, and others tell insane stories of their days behind the velvet rope. And When We Were Bouncers, Volume 2 at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or wherever you buy books. Uh, Paul's got great stories from Edge, Lance Storm, Baz Rutan, Samoa Joe, Gene LaBelle, Steve Austin, and many, many more. And I'm sure Paul's going to tell a lot more of those stories on Chris Jericho's Rock and Wrestling Rager at Sea when he comes aboard as he does a live Killing the Town podcast with Cyrus on the ship you can be there you can say hi meet paul meet cyrus meet everybody meet jim ross jerry lawler socal val mick foley raven uh ray mysterio ricky the dragon steamboat live podcasts with killing the town keep it in 100 will be live beyond the darkness will be live unprofessional wrestling podcast uh busted open radio is going to be there how about some live comedy brad williams craig gas ron funches sal and q from the impractical jokers how about uh karaoke with pat patterson maybe marty Skrull. Join them. How about some great rock and roll? Corey Taylor of Slipknot and Stone Sour, Phil Campbell, the Bastard Sons, Fozzie, King, The Stir. Dave Spivak Project, The Cherry Bomb, Shoot to Thrill, Blizzard of Ozzy, and of course, the Ring of Honor, Sea of Honor Tournament aboard the ship. Matches taking place in the middle of the sea, and the winner of the tournament gets a Ring of Honor World Heavyweight Championship shop in the future. Kenny Omega will be there. Young Bucks, Marty Skrull, Briscoes, Dalton Castle, uh, Jay Lethal, Cheeseburger, Dion, Brandy Rhodes, Melissa Santos, Mandy Leon, Kelly Klein, Matt Taven, Flip Gordon, The Dogs, Brian Cage, Cody's going to be there, Delirious, all of the people are going to be aboard. Go to ChrisJerichoCruise.com and find out a way to book your cabin. Be a part of history. Don't miss out on the very first Chris Jericho's Rock and Wrestling Razor at Sea. Go to ChrisJericho.com and book your cabin now. All right, coming up on Friday. He's hilarious. He is a, a legendary actor, comedian. Talk about Chris Tucker. Chris Tucker's Friday Rush Hour. What's it like working with Jackie Chan? What was it like uh, hanging with Michael Jackson? 
uh, making the Friday movies with Ice Cube, how he ended up with Tarantino's Jackie Brown. Chris Tucker's going to be here. Chris Tucker's Friday Rush Hour. That's the name of the show. See what I did there? Good stuff bringing in. Only the A-listers here on Talk is Jericho. We'll see you on Friday with Chris Tucker. In the meantime and in between time, stay hard, stay hungry. Peace, love, and hugs, and a big yeah, boy.